Our scripture reading today as we pray for illumination. Heavenly Father, help us open our hearts to learn from your word and use your wisdom to live the type of lives that will help create the type of world you envision for us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of Amontes. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it discreetly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. 
And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and they ate. The word of the Lord. We are continuing in our series on the life of David uh, today, and we have just this week and, and next week uh, left as we cover some final key episodes in David's life. Uh, one thing that we've seen throughout the series is that there's a literary artistry uh, to the way that the, the life of David is told in First and Second Samuel. And let me just highlight uh, one thing from chapters 11 and 12 uh, that we see, which together tell the story of, of David's sin against Bathsheba and, and Uriah and, and David's recovery. There, there are three key moments in uh, these chapters where Bathsheba sends word to David that she is pregnant, uh, when Nathan confronts David, and when David confesses his sin. And uh, in the Hebrew, in, in each of these moments, when, when Bathsheba and Nathan and David speak, uh, they, they make a, a two-word declaration. In, in English, it's more words, but in Hebrew, it's only two words in each case. Uh, Bathsheba says, hara anoki, I am pregnant. And Nathan says, Atahaish, you are the man. And David says, Chatati Ladonai, I have sinned against the Lord. Something I, I love about that is it shows us how carefully designed uh, the, the narrative of the scriptures is uh, to make a, a point to us. Last week we saw that it's designed to stress what a low point this is in the life of David. Uh, we said that a, a story like this in the Bible invites us to be realists about human failure and sin, not so that we just beat ourselves up over it, but so that we can deal with it. And this is what we discover in chapter 12. If chapter 11 teaches us uh, about the reality of moral failure, chapter 12 teaches us uh, something about how to deal with moral failure. And so, in order to deal with uh, our failures and, and our sin, we need three things that we can see here in this chapter today. We need true conviction, we need true repentance, and we need true assurance. We're going to look at each one of these. First, we need true conviction. <clears throat> Notice in verse 1 that the work of conviction begins not with David, but with God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is another uh, element of the, the literary artistry of, of these chapters. Sent was, was a key word in chapter 11. It's used 10 times in, I think, maybe 27 verses. Uh, the word sent is used. And six of those times involve David sending people. Uh, he sends Israel to war. He sends messengers to Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah. 
And this is what kings do. They have power and authority uh, to send people, and the people go. Uh, it fits with uh, some of the theme that we saw last week, that underneath all of David's other problems is that he's grown so accustomed to his power, and he started abusing it and acting more like a pagan king than the kind of king that God had called him to be. But now at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, who does the sending? It's God who sends now. He sends his prophet to David. And this is what marks the beginning of David's recovery. Not David sending again, but God sending. The Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, and a poor man. The rich man has great many flocks and herds, but the poor man has this one little lamb that he loves. It was like a member of the family, Nathan says, like a daughter to him. I don't think they had pets like we do uh, in the ancient world, but, you know, this is basically what this was for this poor man's family. It was their pet lamb. Uh, but the rich man has a visitor show up, and rather than take one of his many animals uh, to prepare the meal, uh, he takes this poor man's lamb, and he slaughters it. And how does, Nathan, how does has David respond to, to Nathan's story? He's furious. How could this rich man be so heartless, so selfish? Verse 5, uh, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David, uh, still acting as a king here, he pronounces judgment on the case. And in so doing, he pronounces judgment on himself. This is the trap that the parable has laid for him. Uh, this, this parable was a way of getting around David's defenses. Uh, Jesus loved using parables for this reason, too. Uh, David needed to see uh, himself in some new way and what he had become in the parable uh, helps him to begin to do that. This is the first step in David's recovery, and in anyone's recovery who's, who's blind to a problem in their life is seeing themselves in some new way. Uh, so often we need someone to come to us uh, who doesn't just tell us what's wrong, the wrong that we're doing, but we need someone who can help us to see ourselves in a new way. And David, Nathan's parable does this by asking David to judge. And notice that David gets the judgment right. He demands justice. He knows that the way that this poor man was treated by the rich man was wrong. This is interesting because you might think that because he's lost his moral compass, as we've already seen, you know, that he would respond differently. You know, he could have said to Nathan, hey, that's life. You know, the rich eat the poor. Deal with it. Could have just been hard. Or, or he could have been, you know, very soft with this guy. Everyone makes mistakes. You know, let's not be too hard on him. You know, we can overlook what he did, can't we? But this is not what we find. Even though he had, 
he'd done exactly the same thing. He's angry. He's ready to, to demand retribution. And this shows us something important. You can be very far from God's heart through overt acts of rebellion and immorality, like we've seen with David taking Bathsheba and, and murdering her husband. But you can also be very far from God's heart and be judgmental and angry at people who are doing wrong. And in both cases, you can be self-deceiving and blind to your, your true spiritual condition, like David. When we've lost our way, of course we need to be convicted of the specific ways that we have hurt others. But even more, we need to see the, the, the spiritual condition underneath that led to those decisions and actions. And this is what true conviction looks like. When we begin to see not just the wrongs we've done on the outside, but the, the heart that led to those, condition, those, those decisions. This is true conviction. And when we've woken up to our, our true condition, we can truly repent as David does in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Chatati Ladunai. This confession is, is, is so brief. You know, it, it, it might seem like maybe you, know, maybe you could have dwelt on some of the details here, David. You know, uh, but I think this is part of the point. You know, for one thing, just David do, saying this at all is shocking. You know, he could have just as easily had Nathan killed. You know, how dare you? And uh, done away with this problem, this, this troublesome prophet. But that's not what he does. Instead, he, he confesses his wrong against the Lord when confronted. He, but he doesn't say, I have sinned against Bathsheba, or I have sinned against Uriah. And I think it's obvious those things are true too. But... Underneath, again, underneath those sins is a deeper sin against the Lord. He's not desired God's ways. He's turned his back on God's goodness to him. He's been living a David-centered life rather than a God-centered life. And this we do something bad. It's not just trying to change our behavior. It's acknowledging and confessing uh, our broken condition from which all our thoughts and our actions arise in seeking a renewed relationship with our creator on the basis of his grace to us. Let me offer an illustration. Uh, in, in the book, uh, Prince Caspian, in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, the children who are the main characters, Lucy and Peter and Edmund and Susan, are lost and, and they're trying to find their way through a thick forest. As they're hiking, uh, the great lion Aslan appears to just one of them, to, to Lucy, uh, to show her the right way to go so that she can tell the others and they can all follow together. But only Lucy can see him, not her siblings. And so she tells them, you know, what's, what's happened, that, they, that she's seen Aslan, but they don't believe her. And they refuse to follow her. They mock her. 
And Lucy knows that they're wrong, uh, but she goes with her uh, siblings anyway, and they end up walking in circles for another day. Uh, the next night, Aslan appears to Lucy while the others are asleep, and, and here's what Lewis writes about their interaction. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment, and the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. Welcome, child, he said. For a time, she was so happy that she did not want to speak, but Aslan spoke. Lucy, he said, we must not lie here for long. Much time has been lost today. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I saw you all right. They wouldn't believe me. They're all so... From somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy. I didn't mean to start slanging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy. You don't mean it was. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come up to you alone. How could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone, I know, not if I was with you. But what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow? This shows us something of uh, the, the essence of the kind of repentance we're talking about here. <clears throat> um, because Lucy recognizes in this interaction something important. That her deepest problem is not just her failure to obey Aslan. It was her lack of faith and trust in him to begin with. She didn't really trust that he cared for her and that when he asked her to, to follow him, even if that meant leaving those who would not, uh, that he was leading her to a good place, even if it was painful or, or lonely. The essence of repentance is, is, is a new heart like this, that trusts in God's goodness and love, that, that looks to him and believes that he wants what is good for us. And when we do this, when we turn to him, he always stands ready to forgive and to receive us into his embrace. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You know, for God to put away sin, right? It's a metaphor for, for forgiveness. It's been removed forever. It no longer stands in the way between God and David. And when, when we live into the assurance of this reality of God's acceptance and the love, the grace that he offers, it changes our perspective on, on everything, but, but especially on our suffering. And this, is, this brings us to our, our last part of the, the story today. The hardest part, uh, because it raises the question, if David is forgiven, why then does he suffer the loss of his son? Why did this child have to die? And I, I won't pretend to have all the answers for you today about this, but there are a few things I think we can say. Because on the one hand, it's very clear that David is forgiven. But on the other hand, 
it's clear that he's still going to suffer. And and though it, it may not teach us everything about suffering or about the wrongs that happen in this world, This scene teaches us something important about suffering and forgiveness. Notice that verse 14 begins with the word nevertheless. You know, if if nevertheless wasn't there, it would simply say, because you've scorned the Lord, the child will die. But but nevertheless makes it clear that, that God means what he said in verse 13. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The forgiveness is real. Nevertheless, there will be suffering. This is important to see, especially as we think about uh, our recovery from failures. God is telling David that there will still be suffering that he experiences, even though it's true that he is forgiven. When you suffer, you might be tempted to think that uh, you're being punished for something you've done wrong. But for a Christian, this is never true. God has put away your sin. He's completely removed it. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But this doesn't mean that you will be exempt from any future suffering, including the consequences of your actions. But it does mean that you can view that suffering in the light of God's grace and love. You can trust that God is at work in ways that you may not be able to understand, but that he is always aiming for your redemption and the redemption of the world. This is what happens to David. The child who Bathsheba gives birth to gets sick, and and David seeks God on his behalf. He doesn't eat. Uh, He lies all night on the ground. He's broken. He's broken by this experience of seeing his child sick and, and dying. There's nothing that he can do except pray and intercede. Like Abraham, who's asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. You know, we're not told why, uh, but just as Abraham knew that God had promised to redeem the world through his son, uh, he simply had to trust in God's purpose, even when he didn't understand. And something similar happens with David. In in chapter 7, we saw how God promises to save the world through God's family. Uh, through, through David's family, and now he must trust that God will fulfill his promises, even though he doesn't understand how. He may not understand why he must suffer, why the child must suffer, but he's invited to believe that he is forgiven, and so his suffering is not payback uh, for anything that he has done. God is working somehow through this hard experience. Uh, Because after the child dies, David is able to get up. He's able to get up off the ground and go to worship and and recover himself. Uh, The scriptures here don't answer all our questions about why bad things happen, but it, it does assure us 
that nothing is meaningless in God's hands if we allow him to use even these hard things in our lives to bring us closer to him. As J.I. Packer once said, if you ask why this is happening, no light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. So if God is all-powerful and, and all-good, then he's not the creator of evil and suffering. But nevertheless, these things are not outside his power and control. This doesn't mean that we, we understand evil or we can put a tidy bow on it. We're called to lament and to cry out to him. We don't say, you know, everything happens for a reason in a way that avoids uh, uh, the, the hardship or, or makes light of heartache and pain. Oftentimes, we will be like David, lying on the floor, crying out for help. But Christians believe that when you are in that place, you are never alone. In the incarnation of Jesus, God himself enters into our fallen human condition. He himself experiences the pain of loss and sin. He affirms the reality of grief. When Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, you know, he doesn't say, don't worry about it. You know, I've got this. He weeps. And he weeps to show us uh, that he has entered fully into our humanity. He enters our brokenness and our sin and our grief, uh, but not just to, to wallow in those things, but to destroy them without destroying us. He takes all of those things with him into the grave, and on the third day, God raises him from the dead, uh, showing that death no longer has any power over those who are trusting in him. So yes, there will be pain and suffering in this life, but God never asks us to go through anything that he is not willing to go through himself. We didn't read the very end of the story here today in, in 2 Samuel 12, and, and let me end with this. Let me just pick up with uh, where that story goes. After David got up from the floor and ate, his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was still alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah uh, because of the Lord. David uh, remarkably trusts that though this first child was taken, uh, he will see him again. I shall go to him, he says. And God brings to him in Bathsheba another son who will carry the family line and, and ultimately bring the Savior of the world. In the light of God's faithfulness, 
uh, we are also invited to trust him. When we learn what, what David learned, uh, we can also trust in God's resurrection power. No matter what our circumstances, uh, we can look to him. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know uh, the heartaches and the griefs that we uh, carry with us uh, here today. And uh, we pray that you would uh, remind us of your promises and of your grace, uh, the, the forgiveness uh, and the assurance of your love that we have in Jesus, that we would be able to stand on him today, rest in him, uh, and uh, look at the whole of our lives uh, through his eyes. Uh, we pray that you'd give us hope for the future and uh, a willingness to follow you uh, wherever you lead uh, for, for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.